welcome to the first ever Americans for Science podcast. This is Stefan Neidenbach. I wanted to fill in a gap I felt was missing with the end of Talking Biotech, Professor Folta's podcast. And many of you might recognize me from the We Love GMOs and Vaccines Facebook page and the new Americans for Science Facebook page. The uh, ultimate goal of this podcast will be to talk about how science and politics should be working together, um, hoping to build bipartisan relationships. There should be no re Republican science and Democrat science. We shouldn't be looking at GMOs as Republican science and climate change as Democrat science. It, it's just science. It should, we should be working together, especially when like biotech crops can help alleviate damage caused by climate change. So they should be working together on these issues. So let's get started with some headlines. First, in India, Greenpeace India has been asked to dissolve by the Indian government. Greenpeace was accused of falsifying financial records. This comes after a long history of... Greenpeace protesting many technological innovations that India has been needing to rise its people out of poverty. There are 300 million people in India without electricity right now. That's not much less than the total population in the United States. So for in India to have these protesters from Greenpeace protesting hy hydroelectric power dams be protesting the use of coal, which the United States have been using for decades, is absolutely ridiculous. At first, you need to rise people out of poverty, get them educated, and then you can worry about changing over to more renewable sources, like what the United States is doing. The United States has actually decreased the use of coal over the last 10 years. None of us want to be using coal, but at some point, you do have to put some people first. And if there are 300 million people in India without power, that, that means there are kids that are not going to get a proper education. St trying to study by candlelight and do homework by candlelight, if they're even that lucky, is r ridiculous in the beginning of the 21st century. They even have Indian villages protesting Greenpeace. This one village put in this microgrid for solar power, which completely failed to live up to Greenpeace's expectations. The villagers got a little taste, just a little drip of electricity. And if anything, it just now showed them what they've been missing. Now the demand for coal has skyrocketed in this little village because that the solar can't quite give them what they want. It's unfortunate that wind and solar panels aren't living up to the expectations but problems like land use is just too hard to overcome uh, at this point. So it, India will need to use coal, nuclear, things that Greenpeace is fighting to move forward. So if they're preventing India from doing this, India is going to crack down on them. Greenpeace is responding that it's an attack on their freedom of speech. But what they're missing is that desperate people are going to take desperate measures. All right, moving on. Zen Honeycutt of Moms Across America fame somehow managed to get a, a piece written for The Hill, which is a, a very popular bipartisan uh, newspaper in the Washington, D.C. area, read by pretty much most of Congress. So she's clearly trying to shape public policy with this piece, but after reading it, I can't help but laugh. Most Congress will hopefully see right through this and see what kind of person she really is. She talks about attending the Borlaug Dialogue in Des Moines, Iowa last year. 
She talks about it as being an international symposium of GMO chemical companies started 101 years ago by Norman Borlaug. Uh, of course, Norman Borlaug was born 101 years ago, so he was not starting international symposiums on GMOs, which would not even be talked about until the 1970s into the early 80s. Apparently, she even uh, encountered Julie Borlaug, uh, Norman Borlaug's daughter, whom if I ever get to meet in person, I'd love to ask her about this encounter from her perspective. But Zen immediately whipped out a report that she said was released by the UN called Wake Up Before It's Too Late, all about how organic farms are the only way to feed the world, which is complete nonsense because it was not actually a UN report. If you read the report, it says very clearly at the beginning that it does not reflect the opinion of the United Nations because it was a report written by people to the UN. In fact, just looking at fertilizer use alone, if the whole world were to switch to organic farming, the amount of animals we would need to produce the manure to farm using those methods would be astronomical and would be an environmental catastrophe. Next up, she speaks of encountering the chairman of the Uganda Biotechnology and Biosafety Consortium from Uganda, and I am not going to disrespect this man by trying to pronounce his name, especially after talking to Professor Juma and several other Africans on Twitter um, about how well-respected he is. But his main defense, according to Zen, um, about DM GMOs is that not, not the chemicals, but because he wants to grow some new bananas, uh, and that they've been trying for 20 years to grow some bananas and they haven't been working right. She's completely overlooking his point. Uh, basically, Uganda is trying to develop some biofortified bananas with extra vitamin A, extra iron, and that are resistant to pests that are bothering them. Uganda is actually the largest per capita consumer of bananas in the world. So the idea that Zen is essentially telling them to grow something other than bananas is basically like telling them, let's just tell them just to eat kale. I have always found it absolutely ridiculous that a lot of these anti-biotechnology people, one of their biggest arguments is that things like corn and soy are replacing locally grown food that's already been part of people's diets. And then when we try to alter a crop like the banana that's been in their diet so they can continue eating it, then they protest that and tell them they should be growing something else. It is complete and utter hypocrisy. Then continue to say how all the college students there were just parroting industry talking points, which Professor Folta, in a great graphic, summed it up nicely. When co corporations get the science right, yes, scientists, college students, professors are going to have overlapping talking points. That doesn't mean they're speaking for the corporations. That just means this one corporation happens to be getting the science right. She claims to be worried about the GMO industry trying to get the world to be dependent on U.S. exports. But that doesn't make much sense. Like the Uganda banana, that's talking about a GMO being made by the Ugandans. Bangladesh producing their own BT brinjal. This isn't about... Monsanto exporting their seeds around the world, a lot of times this is about countries developing their own. All right, now moving on to something a little more closer to home for me. Maryland has put out a policy now where hospitals can no longer give out samples of formula to new mothers. 
Now, after sp- speaking to uh, several experts on the subject, such as Amy Tudor, I have come to the conclusion that breast is best in the perfect world. But to quote Amy Tudor, the world isn't perfect. And in many cases, formula might be a better option for many mothers. The problem is the Maryland Breastfeeding Coalition has unilaterally decided that their way is the best way in all situations and that mothers should not even have the option of getting the samples at the hospital when no one's would be forcing it on them they can always decline it it really bothers me that this an option would be taken away when they clearly have the upper hand already they already have lactation consultants in the hospital there's plenty of pressure on these women to already breastfeed. Get, having a free sample of formula is not going to sway women one way or the other. It's really just there for the women who've already decided or are or may, who may end up having trouble breastfeeding later as one more option. And finally, the FTC has been giving the FDA a little bit of heat over claims made for those homeopathic Apathy ads and naturopath ads. Consumers have been claiming about this stuff not working with commercials. Uh, but the problem is the FDA doesn't necessarily have the power to regulate it. So now the uh, FDAs might be cracking down and actually demanding some scientific evidence for these claims being stated. And I'm curious how the, the homeopathic industry is going to respond if it's going to be kind of the same way it happened back in the 90s. Uh, back in the 90s, when it was decided the FDA wouldn't have much oversight over the vitamin supplement industry, the vitamin supplement industry had just gone into overdrive, trying to convince the consumers that the FDA should have no oversight. There was a famous commercial with Mel Gibson, where he was in his kitchen and the federal agents just kind of bust into his house and trying to take his vitamins away which is, of course, complete nonsense. All they're asking is to prove the, the claims being stated. Now, a lot of people might comment that, what's the harm? Most homeopathic products are just a placebo. Pretty much all of them are. The problem is, if people are taking these pills instead of getting proper medical treatment, it might kill them. And other reports have been finding that some of these products have actually been laced with stuff that aren't on the ingredients label, whether by accident or on purpose, that are actually causing harm to people and hospitalizing them. So if you go to the americansforscience.org webpage, I will post a link in the podcast section for you to make a comment with the FDA and tell them that they should be evaluating all claims made on products being sold like it's medicine. All right, let's move forward with some questions from my page that I've received recently. Um, If you have any questions that you would like answered on the show... You can email me at welovegv at gmail.com. You can private message me on the Facebook page, We Love GMOs and Vaccines, or Americans for Science Facebook page as well. All right, this is from Isaac from Sweden. Tell me what will happen if a GMO plant spreads intentionally or accidentally into a wild, uncontrolled inhabitant and turns invasive. Well, Isaac, you have to realize there isn't much of a risk of that. Um, the only domesticated organism I can think of that has turned invasive is the cat. When you think about it, a corn is no more likely to turn invasive than 
a chihuahua. Most domestic organisms, with the exception of the cat, apparently, were bred for our purposes. And our purposes don't necessarily give it survival traits. If corn or soy were able to become invasive, that would actually benefit farmers because they wouldn't need pesticides at all. The whole point of pesticides is because these crops don't do well in nature. Weeds outcompete them, insects destroy them, they just don't compete. So again, even if these crops did somehow escape into the wild, they're not going to last long. When you hear weird reports about a random GM corn growing along the side of a road or something, it's not a threat. It's not, it, it can't possibly survive much longer. It's going to be eaten, it's going to be consumed, it's just not meant to survive without human interaction to help it. All right, and this is from Beverly, who's been following my page for quite a while now. You talked about being anti-GMO at one point. Why were you and what was the tipping point that changed your mind, if there was one? Well, it wasn't necessarily, Beverly, that I was anti-GMO. Uh, to be honest, up until almost two years ago, I had never even really heard the term before, or if I had, it just went in one ear and out the other without really registering. Never heard of Monsanto before two years ago. It was I kind of bought into some of the hype that other people were saying about, you know, organic being better. I was kind of overweight for a big chunk of my life, in my, especially in my 20s and early 30s. So, of course, like a lot of people, you hear, you know, if you switch to organic, it'll, you'll be eating healthier, things like that. It was actually part of what got me starting the page. There's an atheist uh, comedian, Dusty Smith, who uh, has a YouTube channel. And one of his videos was one called I Love Monsanto. And before seeing that, I'd never heard of Monsanto before. Uh, but a lot of what he was talking about sounded just like what the anti-vaxxers were saying and climate change deniers were saying. And he's simply, he was talking about these GMOs, which again, I'd never heard of before. And then I started looking into it. And it was just fascinating to me. And um, having a history and interest in politics and culture most of my life, um, that part of it interests me the most is how, how people respond to this in different countries. People are, you know, the most p famous question is, you know, if it's so safe, why is it banned in so many countries? And that's actually a topic I'll get into in another episode. But that that all just absolutely fascinating. Why does p some people in different cultures react differently to different technologies? So again, researching all of that got me into looking into proper nutrition. I actually dropped 100 pounds, and I did it the right way. It took me about a year. I counted calories, not chemicals. You know, a, a typical dinner would be a just white chicken. I would, you know, maybe touch it up with some buffalo sauce, which is a great condiment because, like, Frank's buffalo sauce has zero calories. Uh, my wife got into making some great vegetables, squash, zucchini, carrots, tastes great. You know, I'd walk away with a four or 500 calorie, very filling dinner, and I lost 100 pounds over a year period. I was aiming for about one to two pounds a week, which is about a healthy way of doing it. If you listen to the real experts and not the people who promise, you know, lose 10 pounds in a week, that's very unhealthy and nobody ever manages to keep it off that way. There's a reason why out of all the fad diets and all the celebrity diets, Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig work the best because it's, it's really just counting calories, which is a very sustainable way of losing weight and keeping it off. So once I started reading about all that and starting the page and talking to Dr. 
uh, scientists and farmers, I realized that GM crops just weren't dangerous, that organic was kind of, I almost want to call it a scam, but I don't want to insult the farmers because I don't really blame the farmers. They're just fulfilling a demand. But the companies themselves, there's, there's nothing healthier about it, definitely nothing environmentally friendly about it. So I hope that answers your question, Beverly. It's not so much that I was anti-GMO, it's that I was just kind of buying into the organic hype for a little bit. And finally, Peter asks, why are so many expletive Americans scientifically illiterate? And again, underneath the podcast link on the americansforscience.org website, I'm going to post some sources with some more information. But it really comes down to several factors. First of all, we're not as illiterate as a lot of people say we are compared to other countries. For example, in a survey, science survey of adults in Europe and Canada and the United States, um, one question was whether or not uh, non-GM tomatoes contain genes. And the Americans and Canadians tied on that question, and the Europeans did the worst. Of course, all tomatoes have genes. In fact, 60% of those genes are shared by humans already. And according to one uh, Michigan State University researcher, Americans are actually a little bit ahead of those in Europe and Japan when it comes to scientific knowledge, uh, though we still have a long way to go. Uh, so while ahead of Japan and Europe, approximately tw- it's only 28% of American adults actually qualify as scientifically literate. And apparently one of the reasons he says that is because the Americans have that slight lead because it is the only major nation in the world that requires its college students to take general science courses. Uh, The other thing to think about when comparing to other countries is uh, test scores. In America by itself, there's this income gap, um, lower income traditionally fare worse on standardized tests than middle and high-income high families. Now, the United States actually has a higher proportion of low-income students than many other developed countries. So we are going to fare worse just by looking at that statistic alone, um, if we're looking at student testing. The United States appears to be relatively low, uh, partly because we have so many more test takers from that bottom of the social cl- social classes. What's really interesting is that disadvantaged and lower middle-class U.S. students actually perform better than comparable students in other developed nations, hopefully showing that the United States is doing a, a better job at reaching those students. Um, and I, I see that. Uh, we have this whole Title I system where Schools in low-income areas receive a lot of extra funding. It's so much so, if you walk into an inner-city elementary school in Washington, D.C., or Prince George's County, where I I worked at one point, you're going to see loads and loads of technology. You have to be a highly qualified teacher to teach there. Loads of resources. But if you walk into a middle- or upper-class school, um, the only way they're going to have all that same technology is if uh, their PTA is on the ball and fundraising for it. The United States public school system gets a lot of uh, of flack uh, politically, but to be honest, when when we really dive deeper into the data, it really is doing really well, especially for the uh, low income. And that's supposed to be the whole purpose of the American dream, is that it doesn't matter what class you're born into, you can rise out of it. 
and I really think, and again, there's always room for improvement, and hopefully moving forward, this will continue to get better, but I really think that that's true of our country. The other thing to keep in mind is something called misconception. There are different preconceptions we've had most of our lives, and it's hard to break. There was a great documentary made about 20, almost 30 years ago now, called A Private Universe. And it it was all about how misconceptions can block learning. There's a famous opening to it where these Harvard graduates, and I'm going to play you a clip from it. These Harvard graduates, supposed to be the brightest of the brightest, can't quite explain why we have seasons. Let Let me play you the clip. It gets nearer to the sun, um, which produces warmer weather and gets farther away, which produces colder weather, and and hence the seasons. How hot it is or how cold it is at any given time of the year has to do with the the closeness of the Earth to the sun during the seasonal periods. The Earth goes around the sun, and, and it gets hotter when we get closer to the sun, and it gets colder when we get farther away from the sun. These graduates, like many of us, think of the Earth's orbit as a highly exaggerated ellipse. Even though the Earth's orbit is very nearly circular, with distance producing virtually no effect on the seasons, we carry with us the strong, incorrect belief that changing distance is responsible for the seasons. So some of these misconceptions um, fall into these different categories, one of them being these preconceived notions that are, that are hard to break. Um, if you look at some old science textbooks, um, a lot of times you'll look at this point of view of the solar system where you're looking down at the solar system, not that there's really a down in space, um, but from that perspective of, and, it, and these old textbooks kind of showed this more elliptical orbit rather than that more circular one, which we, which we really do have. So it actually kind of looks like there are points where the Earth is really, really close to the sun and points where it's really far away from the sun. And they, a lot of students kind of just got that stuck in their head that, well, that's clearly got to be what the seasons is, when we know it's clearly not. It's the tilt of the Earth, so that the northern hemisphere is just kind of tilted away during half the year, and the southern half is pointed towards it, giving them summer, while the north is in winter, which is what a lot of these students forget. Like, if you remind them that, okay, well, if it's the distance from the sun, then you would have to ask them, then how come it's winter in the southern hemisphere when it's summer in the northern. Another problem are, of course, non-scientific beliefs, um, whether it's religious or mythical. Um, an example being abbreviated histories of the earth being taught in, um, by some faiths that being stuck in the minds of some students. And it, when they find out later what really happens, it kind of contradicts their their belief systems. Um, some may react angrily. Some will simply just choose to ignore it. Um, another one is a, kind of conceptual misunderstandings. It's when um, they're taught science that doesn't really provoke them to confront their own um, prior beliefs and paradoxes. And a lot of times when humans are confronted with something they don't understand, they kind of build their own model, their own um, view and their own reality of what's going on. And that, that happens with students in school a lot, unfortunately. If they don't quite understand what's being said to them, they'll just kind of create their own their own answer and their own understanding of it. And that will get stuck with them for the rest of their lives. 
Another is uh, something called vernacular misconceptions. It's when um, one word has different meanings in a scientific context. An example given is the word retreat. You know, you, in militaristic terms, you would think retreat, like an army's retreating. They're now running away. But in, in science, um, when we're talking about glaciers retreating, you know, a lot of students will think, okay, it's like an army. They're going to stop and then all of a sudden turn around and run backwards. When in reality, it's really just melting. So a lot of um, like elementary, middle, and even early high school teachers, it, um, you, I would ask them to start using the word melt instead of retreat, and then maybe start building into retreat later to try to tr teach them the scientific term. Give them the background knowledge first. Make them realize these glaciers are melting. They're not you know, stopping and running away. And then, of course, there are just simple f factual misconceptions. Um, one given in the source I'm going to link to is that lightning never strikes twice in the same place, which is complete nonsense. It can, has, and will again. But that notion gets stuck in the minds of so many people that, it, again, it just sticks with them for the rest of their lives. So go back to, going back to Peter's question about um, Americans being scientifically literate, it's, it's not really that we're stupid or that humans are stupid. It's, it's built into our, the hardwiring of our brains. These uh, misconceptions, these biases built into us from, um, from early on. This ability to, if we, do, if we see something we don't understand, we build our own story around it. So hopefully with um, some of these new things like critical thinking being taught in Common Core, we can hopefully overcome that. And it looks like, according to the data, it seems to be working. Um, students are starting to access this knowledge better. More adults seem to understand it. It's been on the increase. And hopefully the information age with the Internet will help even more. That's why it's more important now than ever. If you have an interest in science, if you are a scientist, start a blog. Start a Facebook page. Get to social media. That's what all the anti-science organizations are doing. It's time for us to start fighting back. And it's good to see that we finally are. And if you're a parent listening to this, be mindful of the vocabulary you are using. You know, when your three-year-old hears you say something about lightning never striking twice, remember, when they're 80, they're still going to be thinking about that. So be mindful of what you say. Your children are sponges. And unfortunately, the older they get, the less of a sponge they are. We have to get the right information into them at an early age. All right, coming up next, I, have a, I am honored to have on the phone Coven Synapathy, author of the new book, The Fear Babe, which she co-wrote with Mark Draco and Mark Alsip. Coven has been writing for uh, Forbes recently. She's a blogger for Grounded Parents. Uh, we've seen her on Gawker. We've seen her on Skeptic. We've seen her on Genetic Literacy. And we've even seen a piece on Slate. Coven describes herself as a science advocate and mom, and she is one of the co-founders of March Against Myths of Modification. Welcome, Coven Snapathy, to my first podcast ever. I want to talk to you a little bit about your new book, um, which I thought was a great read. Whose idea was it? The, books, uh, the book was The Brainchild of Mark Draco, one of my co-authors. It's three co-authors. And Draco, who lives in the UK, is a regular and a veteran of the band by Food Bank Group. And so the book was his idea after he had created several 
memes debunking some of Ani Hari, the Food Babe's most popular myths. And then he and my other co-author, Mark Alsip, got together and they decided it might be worth writing, just writing a book. <laughs> so, and then, and then I joined shortly thereafter. So, so why the Food Babe? There's a lot of these people out there. Why specifically her? The reason that we um, we chose the, the Food Babe, the, Bonnie Hari, the Food Babe, there's this misconception that the book is going after her or attacking her. But really, she is one of one of the most, if not the most, um, arguably popular misinformation vectors of our time when it comes to misinformation surrounding food and health. And so really she, she makes a very effective framework for examining and discussing all of the most, most ubiquitous myths, food-related myths of our time. And then also exploring why they continue to proliferate in the in the face of mountains of evidence against them. I really um, enjoyed that one chapter on the psychology of it all. What what has really made her so successful? The, that's a very compli- complicated question, and we hope that the book does a good job of answering that, but also um, does a good job of helping people examine themselves and why why they believe um, believe charlatans like the food babe. So she's very charismatic, good looking, and she's she's very effective at mobilizing a huge number of people and, and what she does basically is exploit fear, right? Now if if you and I are our parents, so so this is especially applicable to us, if we are afraid that a specific additive or ingredient or food is going to harm not only us, but our children, and if we truly believe that, then of course we're going to avoid that item and and pay a premium for the alternative by whatever means necessary. So so that's why she is successful, but the bottom line is that to some extent, we are all, you know... We're all susceptible to falling for this kind of charisma web and this fear web. I mean, I've done it too. I've admitted that years ago, years ago, I actually bought a supplement that Dr. Oz was selling. So, um, I mean, and even today, sometimes charisma and good looks or compelling non-evidence-based arguments, I mean, think about it, no matter how skeptical or intelligent or good at critical thinking we all we all believe we are as you know as I'm sure that a lot of your listeners will be there there are times that we fall for it so it's something that we always have to be vigilant about um so that's a a long-winded answer to your question no it's perfect uh what about using her techniques against them would that be wise or should we try to take the high road always you said we we're always we're susceptible to. Right. So I think that critical thinking is important when it comes to all our most claims, unless you know, of course, it's something that's that's really obvious. But sometimes I think that using fear is a is a worthwhile technique. As as um, I mean, as you know as well, Stefan. I mean. 
sometimes it's it's worth using fear when those fears are legitimate. There's a difference between a legitimate, real fear and something that's kind of based in in myth. So if if we if people demonize technology, for example, biotechnology, and we say, listen, if if we don't embrace these technologies with you know with a grain of caution, a grain of salt, and then we lose out on advancements like, say, golden rice or drought-resistant crops, then you know then we're gonna the result is going to be death or or widespread illness, that's a real fear. And I think that that is legitimate and should be exploited. So speaking of fear, has she actually gotten anything right? I, I'm asked that question a lot, and I believe at a very high level, in the very beginning, her concern, her concern for, for the all of the, the main problems in the American diet and increasingly diets in the developed world um, are real and legitimate. For example, we, we know that we eat uh, foods that are too high in sodium, saturated fats, and sugar, and this is causing obesity, diabetes, and, and other problems. I mean, for example, obesity is one of the biggest known risk factors for cancer. And so, yes, we should we should all be looking at our diets. We should be consuming more fruits and vegetables, less uh, less sodium, less fat, less sugar. And so, at a very basic high level, these concerns are right. But outside of that, um, Mark Draco, Mark Altup, and I, we spent a good part of a year researching and writing this book, and we haven't found any other claim that she makes that <laughs> that's true or correct. So what what's next? Are, do you have another book in store for the future? Yeah, we do have um, another book in store as as a group, as, as the three of us co-authors, um, and we will be releasing kind of the details on that and kind of what we plan to explore in that book. And um, and I will probably have a book, a solo book, coming up as well. And I also wanted to congratulate you on um, your new gig writing for Forbes. So what's, can you t- tell me a little bit about what's going on with uh, Shiva? It seemed like you sent her an email and she immediately went on the defensive with a nasty article. Right. So I should say I'm, I'm uh, a contributor for Forbes, so I'm kind of a, a freelancer for them, but a regular one. So I'll, I'll write a number of articles per month for them, which is great. I'm excited to, to have started there. And so Shiva, Vandana Shiva was uh, the subject of my first article there since I became a contributor. So what happened is I, um, I was writing this article basically about how people like Shiva and other anti-GMO, and I mean, quote-unquote GMO, we won't get into why GMO is such a problematic term. So for, for the purpose of this podcast, we'll call it GMO. So anyway, other anti-GMO activists who are of Indian origin actually exploit their own culture to to kind of advance their agendas. And so I was working on this article, and I emailed Vandana Shiva, who's one of the most prominent international anti-GMO activists, asking her for, or inviting her to comment for this article. And rather than responding to my email 
or even reading the article that I wrote and responding to that. Instead, she chose to I, to Google me or or have one of her assistants Google me. I'm not really sure whether she wrote it or one of her one of her people did. Google me, um, kind of in a lazy manner, almost bring up the most uh, what what they thought were the most condemning Google search results, and then and then also make up a whole bunch of <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff that I don't even know where they got it. Implying that I may or may not have children, that I'm a Monsanto show. I don't even that I don't even remember what else that I'm that I'm science illiterate, that I don't have biosafety as one of my points of expertise, which is funny because I don't think that Shiva is a biosafety expert either. And it was just this diatribe, almost laughable diatribe, really, and even more so, it was sad and very telling and um, demonstrated kind of what the anti-GMO MO is. I mean, they even went as far as saying that a prominent biotech advocate, Mark Linus, didn't exist before 2007. So, I mean, these are all just a, a few little gems from this very long piece that, that appeared on her website, incidentally, the day that my article published. And I, I can verify it. I've actually seen a documentary with Linus in it that predated 2007. Wow. Wow. Isn't it easy to find proof against these claims? <laughs> Quite easy. Um, so who do you think, out of all these people, is probably the most dangerous? You know, that's, that's hard to say. I, I can't pick one that's, that's the most dangerous. But together, I, I believe that that they're pretty dangerous and and the funny no not funny but I guess because it's it's not amusing but the thing is that they are so well funded right the anti-GMO uh, camp or the almost anti-vax like all of these people are well funded by the natural supplement essential oil organic natural food industries and this is well known but what, what happens is that these these groups, these institutions and organizations will say, of course we're, we're funded by these, these industries, but that's okay, that's noble, that's righteous. Whereas if, if any pro-biotech or pro-vax organizations are, are funded by industry, they'll, they'll paint that as sinister and evil or bad, which is, which is an unfortunate double standard that I think that whenever possible we shouldn't pander to because if if people like us are saying, oh, you know, our organizations, for example, March Against Myths or, or others, we're not funded by industry, which which for, for March Against Myths, at this point we're not. So when we kind of tout that as a, as, um, a selling point, that panders to or perpetuates this idea that these industries are somehow sinister or bad, which is simply not the case. Great. So where are we going forward? Um, you mentioned March Against Myths. Anything um, being planned there? Uh, our, our next big March Against Myths event will take place in May of 2016. March Against Myths was founded as a direct grassroots response to March Against Monsanto, which if people aren't familiar, although they probably are, was 
was started as an anti-GMO, anti-big ag biotech and agrochemical industry organization, but it has since ballooned to kind of a conspiracy theory organization. They're anti-GMO, anti-vaccine, they promote chemtrail conspiracies. Um, So our first annual event was last May. Our next big annual event will be in May 2016, during which in cities across the country and across the world, we will be doing a counter-protest against March Against Monsanto. And again, I've said this before, but we we do not intend or or hope even to sway really the people who march against Monsanto because from my understanding, when it comes to protests or um, demonstrations, marching against Monsanto kind of takes the cake in terms of how kind of vicious they are. And I'm talking about pro-choice or pro-life marches, other political marches. I've heard that March Against Monsanto is kind of the most over the top. And so we, we can't really sway them. But what, what we want to do is to reach the sensitors. So that is our goal. Great. Well, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk with me tonight. And um, good luck in the future. And I hope to um, speak to you again. Yeah, and good luck to the Americans for Science, which is a new organization, and I have a lot of hope for you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Before we end the show, I wanted to talk briefly about a point raised on Twitter by Keith Clore, author of many, many great pro-science articles. I really love his pieces. I think what I like most about him is that um, it really has nothing to do with the politics. He, he just looks at science. I'm, I'm sure, he, same thing like me, he'll, he gets probably accused all the time of being too conservative or too liberal, depending on what he's writing about that week. But recently he made a um, mention on Twitter um, complaining about the term anti-science, how it gets thrown around too much. And I, I believe one of his examples was, you know, Greenpeace might be anti-science on GM crops, but does that make them pro-science on things like climate change? And I think no. I, I would still call Greenpeace anti-science even on the issue of climate change. Because to them, it's, it's not about the science. They, uh, for example, they refuse to look at anything that can be used to adapt to climate change. Things like nuclear power, which can even help fight climate change. To them, it, it isn't about the science, but the ideology. I think a rational wiki has the, the best definition of it. it. That anti-science refers to persons or organizations that promote their ideology over scientifically verified evidence. And I think that's exactly what Greenpeace does. Their view of climate change is that the world is ending tomorrow. The only thing we can do about it is to completely go back to living in the Stone Age. And to me, that is the definition of anti-science. In fact, this is part of the problem with climate change right now is that if you don't agree with that perspective, you're automatically labeled as a climate change denier. You know, the climate is changing. Humans are impacting it. I have no doubt about it. But some people have called me a climate change denier just because I've said things like, well, maybe the world's not ending tomorrow, though. You know, I said earlier tonight that um, you know, India is going to need coal to do this. Well, that kind of flies in the face of climate change science because it's going to negatively impact the climate. And I, but what makes me not anti-science is that I recognize that. Yes, India's reliance on coal is going to negatively impact the climate. 
but with 300 million people without power, it's simply what they're going to have to do right now. So what we need are countries like the United States, which is hardly using any of its money anymore compared to what it used to do on researching to actually take some money and research new options. You know, instead of giving tax credits for solar and wind, which are proving time and time again to not work the way we want it to, we need to put that money into research instead of just giving tax credit to methods that aren't necessarily working the way we hoped. So I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Um, forgive me if there are any hiccups or audio problems. Um, I promise I'll get better with each, with each episode. Uh, for, ex- for instance, uh, I know uh, Coven was just on my speakerphone and my cell phone. If anybody wants to donate to AmericanForScience.org, I'd appreciate it. The money is just can go right back into the project. Um, hopefully I can buy a little bit of equipment. So far, I've only got the one nice mic right now. I'd love an audio input so I could you know, just have the phone go right into it or get some other options going. If you have any recommendations, feedback, I love constructive criticism. Don't be afraid I'm going to get offended as long as you're not rude about it. Please, I'm not going to be able to do this better unless I learn. Drop me an email, welovegv at gmail.com. Private message me on the Facebook page, We Love GMOs and Vaccines. Also, if, like I said earlier in the show, if you have any questions you want read on the air and answered, um, send them there as well. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, hopefully, you, hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you thought about the world a little bit differently. And have a good day. 